Welcome to the Out of the Shadows podcast. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Martin D. Brown. Dr. Brown is Associate Professor of International History at Richmond University in London. He previously worked as the lead researcher at the Center of Excellence in Intercultural Studies at the School of Humanities at Tallinn University in Estonia. As you will soon learn, this episode is all about James Bond. While Dr. Brown's main area of research is the Cold War and diplomatic history, he also has a very strong interest in Bond and the world around one of fiction's most famous characters. In the episode, we explore Bond novels, the Ian Fleming ones and beyond, the field of Bondology, and the cultural turn in intelligence studies. We also talk about the symbiotic relationship between fiction and international politics, And of course, we talk about the popularity of Bond and its consequences. As usual, the episode concludes with some book recommendations. I hope you enjoy the show. Martin, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, one of your areas of interest, one of, of your great areas of expertise is everything James Bond. And... There is even its own term, and the term is bondology, I've come to learn uh, since getting an email exchange with you. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what bondology means? What is the state of the debate, the state of the field? Bondology, I, I suspect your listeners may have one of two reactions to, to hearing the term bondology. Um, one is perhaps a, a slight frisson of excitement and, and looking forward to the new film and thinking about the books and the films they enjoy. The other is a rolling of eyes and, oh dear, when are we going to get away from Bond and study intelligence and espionage properly? Um, And I suppose Bondology is somewhere in between the two. And a Bondologist is is really someone who studies Bond and the Bondian world in all its different aspects. Because there's not one. And I think the first thing to say is we tend, when we think about Bond, to think either about the books or the films. And we tend to forget about all the other aspects of Bond because it's also a cartoon strip that ran for many, many decades, Uh, a cartoon on television, Uh, numerous books written not by Ian Fleming, but a whole range of other writers starting with Kingsley Amis, and they're still being produced uh, to this day. And of course, the scholarship on Bond. Um, not just by academics. Um, I think we should also be aware that there's a huge range of enthusiasts and fans of Bond whose expertise, I will freely admit, probably far exceeds mine in all sorts of aspects Um, and who produce everything from detailed day-by-day chronologies to encyclopedias. Um, A new lexicon is coming out about James Bond And one of the, I mean, I'm still learning stuff on the interesting things there. Apparently there's 271 individual and unique stories about James Bond, 271. Now, I I couldn't even begin to tell you what all of those are. Um, I, you know, like the rest of us, I know about what, 30, 40? What what on earth are all the others? Um, So there's a whole range of things and it's taking off more recently, I suppose in the last few years, not least that there's now an international journal of James Bond studies, a peer-reviewed journal as well, um, and a variety of, of books and conferences um, and edited volumes. But it goes back perhaps further than we think, at least to the 1960s. And one of the earliest Bondologists, although he didn't write a great deal, but he, he wrote a sort of really fantastic essay, and that's Umberto Eco. Um, the great Italian philosopher, um, semiotics, I suppose he really is, rather than a philosopher. But Umberto Eco's narrative structures in Fleming remains a quite brilliant and insightful essay, as you would expect from him, I suppose. Yeah, is there something is not brilliant in, like, or yeah. not brilliant in? <laughs> but even going back, I've just been rereading it and, and rereading Echo on Fleming and um, From Russia with Love. 
Um, and I thought, blimey, well, gosh, there's nothing new I can come up with here. He's, he's more or less said it all when he wrote this back in the 1960s. And the other, I mean, I think great text from the 1960s, and, and Echo was certainly not the first. There's an earlier one by a chap called Snelling. I think the very earliest, something, uh, the James Bond report from 1963, 64, something like that. But one of the best is, is Kingsley Amis, uh, father of Martin Amis, a novelist, of course, um, the James Bond dossier. And Amis, uh, or Kingsley Amis, never really liked the films, but absolutely loved the books, and wrote this terrific assessment of Fleming's books. That, that just radiate his admiration for the character in the books um, in a wonderful way. And it has, a, it has a great table at the back where he has every novel with the plot, uh, with the baddies, uh, with the woman, uh, with what happens. So if you ever forget the plots of any of the novels or the short stories, you just go to the back of, uh, of Kingsley Amos and find it all there. So Bondology has quite a long sort of history in many respects and is also multidisciplinary. Now, being multidisciplinary, I'm, a, I'm by profession a diplomatic historian. Uh, I'm not an expert in intelligence studies or, or cultural history or anything like that, really. But I think what makes Bond interesting as well is you need to be multidisciplinary in your approach. You can't just come to Bond with, you know, events of the Cold War or political history. You can't quite come at it just from a position of literary studies or just from a position of cinema studies. You've got to combine all of these together to get an understanding of how this Bondian universe evolves across a variety of different media, page, screen, um, computer games. I mean, I have a whole range of things. Um, you know, never mind all the sort of, you know, uh, toys and, and, and gadgets and I mean, just a, a vast range of materials. And this allows for, you know, a lot of study and a lot of different perspectives of Bond. Um, David Canadine, for example, Professor David Canadine also did a great uh, essay about Ian Fleming and, and arguing how Fleming's writings was a compensation for the la la loss of empire. And of course, discussions about the British Empire and, and all these things are, are very much in, on people's minds these days. I suppose James Chapman, uh, Professor James Chapman, uh, who, who wrote his book on Bond, gosh, what was it, 15 years, 20 years ago now, um, is really worth mentioning, not least because he, he came up with this wonderful phrase about taking Bond seriously. And it's not just the question, and I think this is still a bit of a question about the cultural turn in history or intelligence studies or many other studies. Um, of course, uh, cultural historians themselves will roll their eyes at this. And, you know, where have you been? How come you've only, you've only just got to the cultural turn? Um, but also, you know, the, the fact that taking Bond seriously for a whole range of reasons, not just because of a long running franchise uh, and one that's known globally. Um, I don't know about the accuracy of this, but, but it's been argued half the world's population at one point or another has seen a Bond film. I, I don't know if that's really true or not, but I think Bond is, is one of those brands, and it is a brand, you know, like Mickey Mouse, Apple, uh, McDonald's, that, you know, you could more or less go anywhere on planet Earth and, and people would have some recognition of it in some way or another, yeah? And there's, there's very few brands, there's very few cultural figures that have that level of recognition. And that's even before you begin to associate brand bond with brand UK, not least at the, uh, the London Olympics back in 2012, but even more so these days that it's, it's actually increasingly, whether we like it or not, increasingly part of British identity uh, to a greater or lesser extent. And this makes bond a very curious and fascinating figure than, than in that many other, sort of literary heroes or heroes of the silver screen are not. And I, I guess you touched upon it. My, my follow-up question on that was, Bond is everywhere and there seems to be, uh, to a certain extent that seems to be a problem uh, in a sense that now we cannot talk of some topics such as espionage or intelligence, especially in the UK context, without making some sort of reference to Bond or there cannot be a debate about what intelligence agencies can do 
without a headline that screams license to kill. <laughs> so I guess my question is, is Bond a bit too popular for like a, for a serious debate or for a serious uh, political measures about espionage and so on? Well, as I said earlier, I'm sure many colleagues who, who work seriously in intelligence studies and, and studies of espionage and do very good work in these areas will be rolling their eyes and, you know, what, what are we going over this again for? Um, I, I would refer to banal bond, and I've stolen this shamelessly from uh, Michael Billig um, and his book, Banal Nationalism. Um, and basically to try and argue that Bond, whatever you think about the books and the films, whether you like them or dislike them, whether you think they've got anything to do with the reality of espionage uh, or not, and we can um, you know, come on to whether Bond was in, in any way an intelligence officer or a spy or whatever we want to call him, but it's so ubiquitous now, Bond, that it's next to impossible to mention espionage in any shape or form without saying Bond in some way. Now, very often this is to say, this is not Bond-like, yeah? Um, you know, I, I've got various Google alerts that go off a couple of times a day with any article or interview. And I think in the last 18 months, they've had interviews with the head of the French External Intelligence Service. They had an interview with the Russian. I mean, these things pop up. Um, the new head of SIS, I think, was interviewed fairly recently in the FT, or was it the, 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 the outgoing resigning one? Whether they like it or not, at some point or another, they're going to say the word Bond. Now, usually that's to say, it's nothing like Bond. This is fantasy. We're nothing like them. But what's remarkable is you cannot talk about it now without mentioning Bond. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not sure. Um, but it makes Bond fascinating. Because, you know, there's no way, especially in the Cold War, uh, and myself and my colleagues, uh, we had a, a conference on the Bondian Cold War here in Tallinn back in 2019, and we're, we're just trying to put together an edited volume of, of articles and essays on this question. You know, we're all Cold War scholars uh, and interested in the Cold War. You know, it's virtually impossible to discuss Cold War espionage without some reference, dismissive or not, to Bond. And then, of course, there's all the ramifications of Fleming's character and Bond himself. Uh, John le Carré recently died. Of course, John le Carré, when you listen to him in the 1960s, the 1970s, writing or talking about Bond is hugely dismissive. You know, I can't stand it by the sounds of it. I'm, I'm not sure if he really felt like that because it's interesting to see how many Bondian references there are in the later Le Carre films, um, especially those that feature ex-James Bond actors. Um, you know, and of course you've got the anti-Bond, you've got the Bond and the anti-Bond. So actually, and even, I mean, some of the things we had at the conference and we hope to have, well, we will have chapters on as well, is the way in which Bond is then absorbed and rejected behind the Iron Curtain. So that when they're creating espionage figures behind the Iron Curtain, um, you can see that they're reacting to Bond. They're, they're anti-Bonds as well. And then you have the pastiches of Bonds, the comedy Bonds, uh, the straight rip-offs of Bonds, um, a whole range from, and this goes from Japan to Italy um, to France. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's more or less global. Um, you know, the whole, the man from uncle in the United States in the 1960s, an original idea by Fleming as well. Um, right up to sort of the reboot of Mission Impossible uh, with Tom Cruise in recent years. Um, so, of course, there's, there's two aspects here. There's this, this fictional role of espionage and the spy. And I've got a little note to myself here not to confuse spy and intelligence officer too often and, and, and uh, you know, get letters to the editor, I'm sure. Um, you know, and then the reality of it. Um, and of course, the interconnection between the two. Um, you know, one, one of the chapters we've got coming is, is from a chap who was, who was a longstanding member of Mossad um, and now works um, with Hollywood movies giving recommendations on, on things like the capture of Eichmann. Um, you know, how do you then feed back into fictional representations of espionage on screen, which are very popular. And whether we like to admit it or not, 
fiction on page and on the screen does shape our memory and how we see the world. You know, it's, it's increasingly clear when I'm teaching students and we talk about history and what you understand about history, that for many of them, their starting point is TV series, feature films, computer games, yeah? And to dismiss this and say, oh, that's not relevant, that's not real, now let, let me teach you about the real. Well, actually, we all do this on a fairly regular basis. I mean, here in Estonia, they're, they're very hot on, on cyber security and cyber defense. I mean, NATO for has- For reason, probably. <laughs> well, for obvious reasons, yes, of course. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you go to here to talks and a colleague of mine, she's, she's working at the, the, the cyber center here, which is it's about five minutes down the road from where I'm speaking to you. Um, when they talk about what a cyber attack might look like, the first thing they reach for is Die Hard 4. Yeah, you want to know what a cyber attack looks like, Die Hard 4. Yeah, if we're thinking about the dangers of nuclear weapons, well, chances are we're going to think about something like Threads. Yeah, um, you know, the, the BBC series. Um, you know, so the way in which fiction shapes how we understand international affairs, I think is really important and in a whole range of different areas, whether it's Cold War studies, international history, intelligence studies, there's a growing recognition of this interplay. And it is an interplay, it's a two-way road. Mm -hmm. It goes backwards and forwards. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly interesting because I'm personally, I, I, I mostly do international relations, although I also do a bit of intelligence studies and so on, and we have the same uh, movement or push within international relations to take um, superheroes more seriously or to take the Marvel Universe seriously. So I think we are seeing the same type of cultural turn in, in a whole series of disciplines. And of course, as you say, probably cultural historians would tell us, well, it was about time, I guess. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to the party. You're late. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but oh. something you mentioned, I had another question in my list, but I think you touched upon something. You touched upon this interconnection between uh, the world of fiction and the world of, and, and the real world and, and the cold door as it was. And in the past few years, I've been doing research on the US government and efforts to assassinate foreign officials and, and so on. And one, I guess, public enemy number one, especially in the 60s, was Fidel Castro. And I think there is an interesting, I, I, I think it is a, a real episode in which Ian Fleming, who was seemingly, seemingly a very good friend of Alan Dulles, mm -hmm. also has a meeting with John Kennedy in which, and he is asked, what would you do with Castro? And apparently Ian Fleming recommends doing something against Castro's beard. Yeah. It was such a powerful symbol of Castro and all of his group. And I found that quite uh, surprising because at the same time you have the CIA and the technical services actually developing poison and developing drugs either to harass people or to kill them. So, so there is really an interconnection. Uh, have you come across any other issues of, uh, for example, Ian Fleming shaping policy or informing policy or whether the novels themselves have informed policy in one way or the other? Well, there's, there, there's two biographies of Fleming, and I, I won't pretend to be a great expert on Ian Fleming's life myself. Um, one by, um, I suppose the most recent one is by Andrew Lysett that came out what, in, the, in the mid 90s sometime. And the earlier was by John Pearson, um, who was a colleague of Fleming. And I think there's another one coming out now by Nicholas uh, Shakespeare. Um, who's a writer, uh, fiction writer as well, whose father happened to go to university with John le Carre and also knows John le Carre. And he did, did a very interesting um, podcast, I think on The Spectator, about his relationship with le Carre and writing Fleming, um, about Fleming and biographies of Fleming. So I wonder if anything new will come out of Shakespeare's uh, new biography of Fleming. Um, Lysett certainly talks about this meeting that they had uh, and the fact that Dulles allegedly had the, the, the Bond books in his office. Um, and there are, if you read the, you know, a, a number of biographies of, of former autobiographies of former members of the CIA. And I think there's one who was the sort of equivalent of the CIA's Q, um, regularly says, oh yes, we, we get people coming in and saying, you know, I saw this in a Bond film, can you make it for us? Mm -hmm. now, now, I take some of that with a pinch of salt, 
Um, you also find references, and I forget which uh, defector it was, but a Soviet defector who came to Britain suggesting that part of his job when he was in London was, was to find copies of Bond films to take to the Politburo and show to the Politburo. Well, maybe, but then again, um, you know, quite how he would take 35 millimeter film back to the Soviet Union, and I'm not sure, before the age of video cassettes. And why would he? Um, Cubby Broccoli in his biography was working and in negotiations with Moss Film in 1976. Apparently they were talking about actually making a film about the life of John Reed. So you can imagine that, the producer of James Bond with Soviet <laughs> Moss Film, talking, discussing about making a biography of John Reed. And the British Embassy showed the man with the golden gun in Moscow in 1976. So there's a whole range of interplay between this reality and fiction. And of course, so much of what Fleming wrote, and there's a lot of discussion about this, some of which is useful and some of which just goes around in, in circles. Um, ben McIntyre's book um, about Fleming and Bond, which was based on the, uh, the excellent um, exhibit that the Imperial War Museum had back some years ago which included Ian Fleming's desk, uh, included the, the, his attempt to interview Stalin when he first went to the Soviet Union in 32, 33, was, was rejected. All sorts of wonderful bits and bobs. But, you know, Fleming's background in naval intelligence, that world, which I know from my PhD, which was about Anglo-Czechoslovak diplomatic relations, you know, the special operations executive and that milieu uh, of ungentlemanly warfare, um, and assassinations, of course, as well. I mean, the occasional assassination, I've, I've certainly looked at the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich in Prague in 1942. You know, this world and the people that Fleming bumped into and was involved with, and, and some of the operations he organized, you can see that this is very much a world and an environment that then's carried through into the early Cold War as are many of the actual personalities of SOE and SOE itself, which is then rolled in to the special opera, um, into to SIS, um, as is OSS, then rolled into the CIA. So there's an almost seamless progression between these activities of the Second World War into the Cold War. And many of those characters through the 50s into the 1960s remain the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it, it's no mistake that Le Carre, when he's writing Tinker Taylor in the 70s, um, and even Len Dayton, when he does his game set and match uh, series of books in the 80s, you can see in which the, 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 the Second World War haunts so much of the Cold War mm -hmm. and continues to haunt, haunt us to this day. I mean, the memory wars that are still going on. I mean, you know, there's, there's a reason, you know, one of, one of the core reasons of the conflict between the Baltic um, nations, the Baltic states and Russia today are, are not just political, they're also about memories of what happened in the 1930s and 1940s and disputes about those memories. Um, memories which are misremembered on both sides, I would hasten to add. Um, and both sides contribute to the, to the lack of clarity of the memory. I mean, it's very easy to point a finger at one particular side and say, oh, well, you're the one lying and this isn't about truth, uh, fake news and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, that's all wrapped up into it. And, and that memory, those, those golden, golden six years of the Second World War, certainly for Fleming, this is what he's reliving through Bond in many respects. Those early Bond novels, I would argue, have very little to do with the Cold War. They're, they're really about sort of reimagining what he was doing in the Second World War and, and what those sort of characters, quite heroic, amazing characters were doing. And yet when you say that, I was just reading an article by Charles McCarry, the, the ex-CIA officer who then began writing fiction. Is it Tears of Autumn, his first novel, I think, about the assassination of, of JFK? Um, really quite a good uh, you know, espionage novel. Uh, and really interesting, really rooted in the Cold War, not just geopolitically, but in all sorts of ways. Uh, and McCarry's talking about the literature, uh, uh, fictional literature of espionage. And he begins with the story of the assassination of the Pakistani president. Was it Zia, off the top of my head? Um, I think in the 70s. 
Um, and he has this wonderful story about how he's at a seance and the woman leading the seance says, oh, I see vegetables and I see fruit and this has something to do with the assassination. And then months later, they discovered that it's quite possible the bomb that went off was hidden in a bowl of fruit. Um, the point here being not whether that story is correct or not, right? It's just sometimes when you look at the espionage of the Cold War, and some of the more absurd activities, I mean, the, the raising of, of the Soviet sunken nuclear submarine by mm. the Gomar Explorer. I mean, you put this in a Bond film and it would be laughed out the studio. No one would watch it. It would be too absurd. So this interaction between fact and fiction, very often it's, it's the fact that's far more ridiculous than anything in a Bond or in a, in a fish, fictional, you know, representations of espionage you know, assassinating people with umbrellas on London Bridge and all this sort of stuff, or, you know, putting polonium in people's tea. I mean, you, would you get away with this in a script? People would think it would be too absurd. So again, it's, it's this vacillation and dynamic between fact and fiction. It's very easy to poo-poo it. You know, Fleming's Bond is, is, is fiction, it's silliness, it's, I mean, there's occasional moments of spycraft and he does a few things, but it's all silliness. Um, and, you know, one must go to the documents and one must look at policy and this is far more silly. Well, okay, yeah. Um, but then when you actually look at the activities and what was going on, on all sides, um, and, and when you see, you know, I mean, I mean, the CIA, I'm sure you're, you're aware of a whole range of its activities. I mean, you know, some of which is just, what on earth did they think they were doing? I was yeah. reading just this week, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by John Marks, who was the famous like, uh, journalist who wrote one of the first exposés of the CIA. And, and, and that book about the activities in the 50s and 60s were just like incredible. And the things that academics and scientists were doing for the CIA is just, Oh. <laughs> well, there was there was the very good um, documentary, and I forgot the name of the American filmmaker, Wormwood, yeah. um, about the, the CIA experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs. On MK Ultra, yeah. Yes, that's right, that's right. Uh, and now on one level, if you read this in a spy novel, you go, mm, yeah, all right, okay, seems a bit far-fetched. Yeah. Um, so, of course, it is fascinating, um, and of course, one wonders if you are you know, uh, working in intelligence these days. I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested. I just gave a lecture to the Baltic Defense College here about the work of Sir John Hackett, who wrote a book in the 1970s called World War III. And Professor Lawrence Friedman uh, has just written a book about future histories of war. Now, all of this stuff about future histories and, and what war will look like and, and, and um, fit intel, they call it, fictional intelligence, they now call it. Um, one wonders if you're if you're trying to do this same sort of thing, not in the military sphere, but more of an intelligence sphere. Well, where do you go to? Um, you probably want to be picking the brains of some of these fiction writers to get some ideas. Um, maybe as John F. Kennedy did with Ian Fleming in their in their famous dinner together. I'm not sure Fleming gave him anything serious to work with, but um, he certainly had no shortage of ideas. There was something similar also post 9-11, if I remember correctly, about uh, the Bush administration asking in fiction writers and producers about how the next attack could be or something along these lines. But uh, they, they, they do it all the time. Uh, Max Brooks, who, who wrote <laughs> World War Z, um, has been employed by the US military, by the Pentagon, to, yeah. to come up and, and sort of blue sky think. They've got a whole department called the Mad Scientists. They do this all the time. Um, what you get out of it, it I, I'm, I'm not actually sure, but of, of course, some of these things, it doesn't matter whether it's measurable or where you can yeah. you know, with an RAF ranking for it. I mean, this, these metrics, I think, should be regarded with a healthy skepticism, um, especially by us academics. Um, but nevertheless, you know, actually just sort of the blue sky thinking is, is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, so, but yeah, that dynamic, I think, is fascinating. There's no easy answer. No, no. Um, and of course, Fleming himself goes, I mean, some, in some of the books, you know, giant being attacked by giant squid, uh, I mean, a, a slightly ridiculous. Um, and, and of course, the films themselves go off in all sorts of weird tangents, directions. But quite frankly, I think you could sit down and every, for every bit of silliness you could find in Fleming or anywhere else, you could find something just as absurd that happened in real life. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think this relation between fa fact and fiction is, is really interesting because uh, the Fleming novels are written clearly at actually at quite a very important points uh, during the Cold War, say just after the Cuban Missile Crisis or uh, during the Tant and so on, but or at the start of detente and predicting detente perhaps, but there isn't much of an actual Cold War within uh, the Anne Fleming novels, as you can probably, you, you can find in the Le Carre novels. In the Le Carre novels, the Cold War is really explicit. Whereas in, in the Bond novels, you have this organization, this enemy organization, but there isn't clearly a sense that that organization is the Soviet Union or that the enemy is the Soviet Union. So is Bond a Cold War um, hero, I guess, or is it, or is it not? And if, if it is, what is the role of the Soviet Union, of the CIA, of the US government, of other big Cold War actors? Um, well, this is certainly one of the subjects of the conference I organized with my colleagues, uh, Dr. Ron Granary, who's, who's at the uh, US Army War College, um, and Dr. Muriel Blave, who's at the Center for the Study of Totalitarian Regimes in Prague. We're, we're really interested in this, this Bondian Cold War and the aspect of the Cold War and how the Cold War is refracted through the Bondian franchise, uh, both in print and on screen. On one level, you can find plenty of texts and books and authors who will tell you there's a very direct, clear connection. Uh, and the Bond films in particular are British Cold War propaganda, and it's all very clear cut and, and straightforward. I don't really buy that. And Fleming himself in interviews, I, I think one of the most revealing interviews he gave uh, was with Playboy just before his, his death. Um, is very open, as, as is Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman as well when they took over the film franchise. They're all very clear. And Kevin McClory, uh, who worked with, with Fleming beforehand, the guy who owned the rights to Thunderball um, and, the, and the big legal problems. Now, all of these guys are very clear. We do not want to make films about the Cold War because we don't think they'll sell and we don't think the audiences want them. Yeah, they're absolutely clear about that. Fleming is clear about that in his books from Thunderball onwards when they invent Spectre. Yeah, with McClory. I mean, there's a big debate who, who comes up with Spectre and I mean, Fleming was a rare book uh, collector and um, bizarre as it may seem, he actually owned an original copy of Marx's Communist Manifesto. So, I mean, you know, he could have got the word Spectre from anywhere, but the idea that Ian Fleming had an original copy of the Communist Manifesto, anyway. Um, but they're very clear. This is about money. What We want to make money. Fleming says this. I'm not writing these books to win the Cold War. I'm writing these books for a bit of fun to make money. And I think those attempts to understand Bond and Fleming that disassociate themselves from the financial aspects of the business of Bond, it is a franchise. Yeah? This is not government propaganda. Um, you know, this is not soft power, although Bond is undoubtedly part of the culture comf of the Cold War. There is a big question if it's part of the cultural Cold War or probably more likely, I would argue, part of Cold War culture. Yeah, and a clear difference between the two. And, and, you know, Cubby Broccoli and Saltzman as well, you know, we're making this to make money. You know, the Soviet Union is never really the enemy in any of the films, even from Russia with Love. You know, they either use Spectre or, you know, the archetypal, we now find comedic Bond villain, hollowed out volcano. Um, undersea layer, all these sorts of things. I mean, we do find them now comedic. Um, and yet, you know, this quite intentional desire to separate it um, was designed on the basis of profit. Yeah? Then actually separating, Fleming himself is very clear in the late 1950s, he thought the Cold War was coming to an end. Now this, this I find very interesting why he thought in the late 50s, the Cold War was coming to an end. He still, you know, had a network of journalists he was working for. Um, was, was sort of, he may or may not have still had connections with, with SIS at this stage in his career. Um, you know, but he felt the Cold War was coming to an end. And given his knowledge of earlier spy thrillers from the 1920s, 1930s, yeah, um, Sapper and, and, and these sorts of things, um, 
he thought, well, if we, if we locate it in the Cold War, if we make the, the Russians these stereotypical, what he would have called the Russians, the Soviets, these stereotypical baddies, it's, it's, it's going to be out of date very quickly. What we need is something more abstract that isn't going to date so quickly. Now, in retrospect, from a financial point of view, boy, did they get that right. Yeah. Um, now, of course, Le Carre also managed to go over that Cold War to trans transition past the Cold War into the 1990s. I think actually some of Le Carre's strongest books are those he wrote in the 1990s and the early noughties, um, but not everyone agrees. So the Bondian Cold War is one where, where the Cold War is, is distanced in all sorts of peculiar ways, where international communism is not the enemy. Um, I mean, even, even, you know, Bond doesn't go behind the Iron Curtain really in any of the books, yeah? Not really. I mean, he goes to the Soviet Union twice, as far as I recall off the top of my head in his books. You know, these books are really focused on what was Fleming's real interest, which was transatlanticism and the United States. That's what he was really interested in. Um, he was obsessed with the Caribbean and the United States. He loved traveling there. The books are really about the quote unquote special relationship from the British perspective. Um, the Soviets, the Chinese, everyone else are really big players. And the only real hatreds that come out from Fleming anyway, is his hatred for Bulgarians. Not quite sure I've ever figured out why he hated Bulgarians. They're even the baddies in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, and also Rastafarians. Um, his absolute hatred for Rastafarians that he saw as sort of, you know, drug crazed killers. Um, it, again, I, I found slightly bizarre, but anyway, the, those are the only ones I, I see real passion of hatred for. Everything else is, is assumed and changed. So the Bondian Cold War is, it, is very different to our understanding of the Cold War and very different to the representations we see in other espionage writers, uh, which are quote unquote more realistic. The question of whether Le Carre is more realistic, it's certainly rooted and located in realism to a greater extent than Fleming. Um, so it's a more re realistic universe, without doubt. Whether it's more realistic, um, I mean, you might argue a really realistic espionage book would just be someone sat at their desk going through papers uh, and attending committee meetings. Um, would that not be the most realistic, you know, what would be the most realistic war film? Well, people sitting around polishing their boots and waiting for something to happen. Um, you know, you don't want realism in fiction, of course, we must remember. We, we keep coming back to this debate all the time with every new TV series or, you know. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll push you back a bit on, the, on a point you made earlier, which is con precisely connected to this about uh, James Bond not being soft power or not being British soft power. But isn't that like, isn't that to a certain extent British soft power as in it is the British hero that saves the day and maybe relies on the Americans, but the Americans are at best junior partners. Sounds a lot like, as you said, <clears throat> earlier, like World War II or pre-World War II it British pride, yeah, I, mean, I guess. There's certainly all sorts of aspects of imperialism and British nationalism in Fleming, and to a lesser extent in the films. Remember, the films are made by an American and a Canadian. A Canadian who spent most of the 1920s and 30s promoting circuses in Europe, um, and an Italian-American at that. The idea that these guys are pr promoting British soft power is just, well, hang on a minute, why are they doing that? Yeah? Well, they're not. Uh, you know, Cubby Broccoli's in Britain because the British government in the 50s changed the laws on funding for film and it became advantageous from a tax perspective for him to relocate to Britain. That's what Cubby Broccoli's doing in Britain. He's not there to serve the British state, right? Ian Fleming, you know, without doubt was, of course, you know, a very proud patriot and, you know, so on and so forth. But soft power, depending on how we define it, and certainly the use of soft power in the Cold War, we would tend to imagine would be related to the state. And what then is the relationship between the Bondian universe and the British state? And at different points, it comes in and out of focus. Yeah? 
Um, certainly by the time, and, and one of the most studied films and, and, and a great piece of Bondology um, is the Open University study um, of the making of The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Tony Bennett and Janet uh, Woolacott, um, they later, later wrote a book called Bond and Beyond or a collection of essays about this as well. Uh, and if you look carefully on YouTube, you will find all the Open University documentaries about the making of The Spy Who Loved Me. Now, The Spy Who Loved Me is interesting because not only uh, do we have Harold Wilson turn up on set, yeah, and there's wonderful photographs of him with Roger Moore in front of these submarines on the set, yeah, but of course the Royal Navy is helping, the Royal Navy is, is allowing them to film, I think it's Faz Lane off the top of my head, the, 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 the base up in Scotland is allowing them to shoot, uh, shoot on, on ships. I mean, the famous example of this from the United States is, of course, Top Gun, uh, the US Navy allowing. So, you know, there are points at which the British state uh, is supporting Bond. Um, and that's become even more explicit more recently with, with the Olympics in London and with the fact with every new release of a Bond film since 2012, British embassies around the world on the day of the release of a new Bond film have Bond parties, have Aston Martins outside. I mean, all of this is up on the, I was about to say FCO, but we're now supposed to say FCDO, aren't we? Um, they've changed, I've only got used to the change from 1969, so when I'm going to get used to this new change, I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, it is now part of the British brand. It is now part of the British export market, yeah? Was it in the 50s? I think that's far less clear, yeah? And what was, what was Fleming's intent? You know, I think with Fleming, he's a lot more playful than the books themselves might give you an idea of. There's a wonderful, uh, you know, preface in uh, From Russia With Love, where he says, everything in this book is absolutely accurate. Yes, absolutely, so I've proven it, it's absolutely accurate. Yeah, of course, none of it is. He's pulling your leg, he's having fun. He's sitting in his desk in Jamaica in the morning, yeah, thinking about going scuba diving. And okay, how much am I going to get for this book? Um, that's not to undermine his purpose or what he produced. But I think he's given far too much credit as being part of the cultural Cold War and Cold War, you know, it's often suggested Bond is part of Western Cold War propaganda. It certainly could be seen as that. I mean, one of the interesting things here in Tallinn is, is trying to figure out when people saw their first Bond. Um, because certainly in Tallinn, they got the television from Finland. So my wife, who was born in the Soviet Union and is Estonian, um, you know, first saw our first Bond on, on Finnish television, mid-1980s. Um, and I was talking to a colleague here in Estonia, he goes, oh yes, Bond is terrible propaganda. When I first saw it in the Soviet Union, and when we saw it on Finnish telly, I switched it off because it was such terrible Western propaganda. Um, how, does, how do audiences take Bond? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually quite a, a, an understudied aspect. We know about the production, we know about the writing, uh, we know about all the clever things people have said about how it interacts with a whole range of Cold War features, but how did different audiences take Bond? Um, I don't think British audiences, when they went to see Bond, came out thinking, yes, I'm glad we, we've got X percentage of spending on, on, on the military uh, and down with the Soviet Union. I'm, I'm not sure they come out of a Bond film thinking that, but do audiences elsewhere? Um, I wonder, I mean, I, you know, I think there's a lot more work to be done on audience reaction. And there's certainly moments where the British state in the Cold War is supporting the Bond franchise. But then again, a lot of that just seems to be part of the export drive and supporting the British film industry. More than soft power in itself. I, that's, my, that's my take. Uh, and I'm happy to be proven wrong on that, but. No, no, I mean, it's, it's very interesting in this point about how audiences uh, would react or what is the reaction of the audiences. It's a, it's a very interesting one, not only to Bond, but to several other products of uh, pop culture that are produced in, in, in various countries. Oh, I, I mean, just one, just one addendum there, if I may. Um, I mean, the classic example I always give to students when we talk about these issues is the film 300 uh, about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, which came out, was that 10, 15 years ago, something like that, buff chap, leather shorts, yeah, this, this, this fantasy of the, uh, you know, the, the Herodotus' uh, explanations. Um, and the Iranian government were very upset by this and thought it was anti-Persian propaganda. 
Yet, of course, the Persian position fundamentally misunderstands how films are made in the United States. And unless you know about film production, unless you know about film funding, yeah, you're not really going to understand what is state-produced soft power and what isn't um, by the state, you know. And then we have to really think, why would Cubby Broccoli and, and Harry Saltzman, after all, Harry Saltzman produces one of the weirdest Cold War films of all, which is The Billion Dollar Brain with Michael Caine, um, where the enemy is a mad Texan and the hero is the Soviet general. Um, so, again, these things don't quite stack up as clearly as we would like to think. I mean, I, I think you mentioned... Uh examples you give to your students. And, and I think this would be my next to last question before I go into my traditional last question. Um, of course, you, you said your expertise is, of course, diplomatic history and so on. But I guess the, the research on Bond or the interest in Bond must provide you with some uh, controversial, controversial aspects within Bond that help you connect with debates that are important to students or that are relevant to uh, today and so on. What would be some examples of this? Because uh, I can think at torture, for example, it comes up in quite a few uh, Bond films and it definitely, maybe not so much now, but say, you know, what is it, 10 years ago, was very much at the center of debates with the release of the Senate report and so on. Uh, what are the controversies, the issues that Bond introduces to students or that raises perhaps yeah, I mean, I, I, a couple of years ago, I did a short article for the Times Higher Educational Supplement um, about using James Bond to teach the liberal arts. Um, and, and this is where what, what meager qualifications as a Bondologist I have come from. So it, it's, it's basically I spent 10 years teaching a course about James Bond and international history. Um, my university, uh, Richmond, the American International University in London, asked me some 15 years ago, come up with a new first year course. Um, and I think everyone listening will remember their first year courses from university or maybe will remember the courses they were forced to teach uh, uh, as junior academics for the first year, which range from the shockingly bad to the shockingly awful. Um, and I thought the one thing I would, I would love to do for a first year course is, well, what would I like to study as a first year undergraduate? Well, let's do James Bond. Um, and I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity, okay, if you can make it academic enough and you can make a proper course out of it, do a first year course on James Bond and international history, which is what I did and then taught for 10 years. This is, where, this is where it all comes from, to be quite frank, apart from, you know, my background of, of sitting with my dad in the 1970s watching James Bond on ITV. Um, but a couple of things, not necessarily what I thought came out of, of these courses. Torture is certainly one. Um, you know, the, the torture scenes in Casino Royale, uh, the first novel, um, which were later, I mean, the torture uh, in Bond was later critiqued. With, it wasn't actually, you know, it was a later uh, review of Dr. No, and of course associated with the French torture in places like Algeria. So this is, this is an interesting segue to then begin discussing issues in historical context. Of course, after 2001, 2002, Abu Ghraib, this came back again, uh, about the utility of torture or lack of utility of torture, and the morality and ethics of torture, uh, and whether it works. Of course, at the same time, certainly with Andrew Lysett's biography, what came out more and more was the sadomasochistic relationships that Ian Fleming enjoyed, um, not only with his, 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 his wife, Anne Rothermere uh, Fleming, um, that they were involved in a uh, quite open and willing sadomasochistic relationship uh, with each other, um, which sheds a, a, something of a new light on the, on the role of torture in the, in the Bond books beyond geopolitics and international relations. But also gender more generally. Um, I think some of the most interesting work that's being done uh, on Bond and Bondology these days, and we're lucky to have a, a number of Dr. Lisa Funnel as well is contributing to our volume, um, as is uh, Dr. Monica Gamania from London, um, and also Claire Hines and Stephanie Jones as well. And, and, and Claire Hines, Dr. Hines has, has written a great book about James Bond and Playboy. I mentioned Playboy earlier. 
that relationship between Ian Fleming, Bond and Playboy in the late 50s, early 60s, I think is, is a really crucial one, uh, far more than perhaps John F. Kennedy saying, oh, I read a, a Fleming book. But the, the gender aspects, yeah, certainly one thing that the students pick up, picked up on very quickly were changing gender roles. And of course, the, I think, I think fairly, fairly understandable accusations of misogyny in the books, although perhaps it's less than you might think in the books, if you look very closely. I mean, there's some, still some pretty shocking stuff. Um, but also the changing gender roles in the films becomes very apparent to the students without, without saying much. Yeah. Um, of course, by the time you have Judy Dench calling Pierce Brosnan a misogynistic Cold War dinosaur, um, you know, they get it. But you can see those changing gender roles as well with the quote unquote Bond girls. Um, and that Bond girl role, you know, certainly in the 1960s, and of course we had the recent death of, uh, of Sean Connery and, and, and he said controversial things there. And his role in the 1960s is, is perhaps different to the Bond in the books. Um, I think it's interesting that Kingsley Amis um, identifies a far, a, a slightly different attitude between Fleming and Bond and women in the books than others have. But the changing gender relationships, changing societal approaches, even changing fashion. Um, you know, one of the things I like to do uh, with the students was show them the changing gun barrels uh, at the beginning of the Bond films. The most obvious thing is, you know, when do men stop wearing hats in the 1960s? I mean, not a vastly important factor, but in terms of, you know, basic sociology and culture, there's a point at which in the 1960s, Bond stops wearing hats. And by the time, you know, he doesn't really wear hats into the 70s. Yeah? Um, flares, you know, in the gun barrel sequences, you can see the, the, the flares widen and shorten, <laughs> like sort of a flag in the wind. Um, so there's a whole range, some of which I sort of realized and factored into the reading and the, and the lectures and the seminars, some of which sort of caught me by surprise and I didn't realize. <clears throat> and of course, also the, the, the changing nature as well of when you started, because one of the things I wanted to do on the course as well is look at different bonds as well. So we would show clips from the spy who came in from the cold, a very different sort of less romanticized view of the Cold War. Um, you know, the films and footage from behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah? I mean, after all, they were, they were making police procedurals and spy films and comedies and musicals behind the Iron Curtain as well. It wasn't all four, four hour documentaries about tractors. Um, although you'd be surprised how many people still think it was during the Cold War. You know, so there was a very lively scene there. And of course, the ambiguity of the Cold War, that the Cold War, unlike Studs Terkel's book, The Good War about America in, in World War II, is oral history. The Cold War is, is less clear cut. It's grayer than perhaps students realize. And I think some of that comes out in Fleming, not, not a great deal, not in the same way that you find it elsewhere in Len Dayton or, or Le Carre or, or many others. Um, where it's, it's far less clear on what side you're on. Um, and I think, you know, there's some really interesting work now being done on transnational anti-communist actors in the Cold War. Um, and, you know, the work being done on the anti-communist coup in Indonesia, for example, and its repercussions in Latin and South America in the 1970s and 1980s. Now, as academics and, the, uh, and people who study the Cold War were aware of that, I think, and, uh, you know, uh, although you still do find that, and uh, I think those people who talk about a new Cold War are simply those people who've never stopped fighting the last Cold War, quite frankly. I don't have very much patience with this idea of a new Cold War. It might be a good way to sell, sell books or, you know, have a nice headline on your article, but I'm, I'm not sure it's very useful. But the, the, the messiness, the ambiguity, um, certainly, I used it as a way of, of, of really getting into decolonization uh, as a global process. Again, largely, largely absent in the Fleming novels and very largely absent in the books as well. Whereas you do find it in, in many other espionage novels, you know, that, that third world, that non-aligned world is largely absent outside of the Caribbean, is largely absent in Fleming. 
So there's a whole range of, of different ways that you can use Fleming and the Bondian world to segue into controversial issues, as well as, I suppose, the most basic one. Um, did espionage work in the Cold War? Um, was it something that, that, that really got some traction and made a difference in the Cold War? I mean, there's debates there about, you know, did intelligence work in the Second World War as a, a missing dimension, as not so long ago we were talking about it. Um, you know, is that helpful? Um, how do we understand it? How, how easy it is it to, to really, you know, spy on the other side and get useful information that you take at face value? Um, so there's a whole range there, some of which are controversial, some of which are less so. Um, and, and even things like international travel and, and tourism, you know, certainly by the time you get into the 1970s and Roger Moore, you know, the, this is really, if it's promoting anything, it's international tourism. You know, British Airways, later on Virgin, um, jetting off to Rio de Janeiro, or, you know, these, this, is, this is really this age of jet-setting globalization, mid-Atlantic jet-setting globalization, I should add. Yeah. So if it's promoting anything, it's, it, it's in, a, in, in some ways the lifestyle, I think it's increasingly self-referential -refer in a way. It really is reflecting the lifestyle of the cast and crew of the Bond films as they travel around the world making Bond films. It becomes more and more meta, more and more self-referential, more and more postmodernist. It goes along through into the 1980s um, and, and reaches a point where it has to be renewed. And I think the renewal of Bond is interesting. The renewal of Bond in print, I mean, first with Kingsley Amis uh, and his Colonel's son, then with John Gardner, Raymond ba um, Benson, and the continuation novels. After all, the Bondian Cold War hasn't finished. They're still writing new Bond novels um, and, and even series of novels about Miss Moneypenny uh, and James Bond in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Miss Moneypenny's diary. So the, the Bonding Cold War hasn't finished. Yeah? It didn't finish in 89. It's still being refought uh, in a variety of different platforms. So yeah, a whole range of different, I mean, it's a really interesting way to basically get students interested in 20th century international history from a cultural dimension, economic, political, um, military. You know, there's a, there's a whole range. It, it's very useful and, and, and by and large, uh, I would hope um, they got a lot out of it. We, we usually enjoyed sort of, you know, doing the class, perhaps more than, just trying to think what I was doing as a first year undergraduate, uh, 19th century British social history, gobbit work, um, which is all very valid and all very good, but, you know. Perhaps less enticing, I guess. <laughs> a little, yes. We have to perform a little more these days, perhaps. Yeah, quite interesting. We mentioned so often Kingsley Amis because he lived for some time in Swansea here, and his house is actually very close to mine. And there is one of those blue plaques outside the house that said that King Kingsley Amis lived here. And so, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I guess I, I, I use a picture of that house for the for the episode as a as the cover of the episode that <laughs> came up so often. Uh, I mean, some controversial uh, character, somewhat of a controversial character, but still. Oh, oh very. <laughs> and of course, for Kingsley Amis, his opportunity to write Bond, he's very open about this. He writes an essay about it. I do this to own the libs. I'm writing this to piss off the left wing. He's very clear, yeah? So for Kingsley Amis, this is a great opportunity. Um, and he, any, I mean, I have to find the reference, but he writes this essay about why he decided to write Colonel's Son. He goes, well, of course, you know, the opportunity, I like Bond and the money might be good, but I'm really doing this because I'm so fed up of people telling me the war in Vietnam is a bad idea. Yeah. Right? Um, so for, for, for Amos, this is, you know, he wants to own Bond as a right-wing project. This is fascinating. And of course, the political debates about people trying to take ownership of Bond on either side of politics is fascinating. That's quite different from Fleming's intent. Now, you know, the negative critical reviews of Fleming's novels in the 1950s, you know, sex snobbishness and, and sadism, this sort of thing. Um, it's the Johnson review, I, I forget the, the exact reference. You know, a lot of this is political, that Fleming was identified as, as, as a right-wing establishment figure, public school. Yeah, so anything you wrote and Bond, and it, it's all right-wing Cold War propaganda. 
I'm not sure Fleming really saw it like that. And Fleming may well have been a representative of all those things. But of course, at the same time, he's also somewhat countercultural in what he's writing in the 50s. Uh, his attitude towards sexual politics in the Fleming books is not that of the British establishment of the 1950s. Um, you know, when he writes The Spy Who Loved Me, the, the novel, um, which is done from um, the perspective of a woman, uh, Vivian, is it Vivian Matthews? Michaels, Vivian Michaels. I hope I've got that right. There's all people shouting at their computers that I've got that wrong. Vivian Michaels, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is the heroine there. Bond only turns up in the last third or last quarter of the book. Um, it's basically about what life for a, a young, relatively emancipated woman in the late 1950s in, in Canada and Britain was like, including illicit sexual relations, uh, abortion, all these. It doesn't work as a Bond book on many levels. Yeah? Uh, and he never tried it again. But as an attempt by Fleming to write something a little countercultural out of the ordinary, it's really quite fascinating. Yeah? Uh, and his attempt to do a female character. Uh, why he decided to do that, you know, is interesting in itself. Um, but the arguments over Bond and, you know, ownership of Bond and what Bond represents, I don't want to say they're separate from the product of sales. Of course, they're not. They're, they're interconnected to it. Yeah. But it is interesting to see how that's still going on. Yeah. Um, and that the ways in which, you know, certain writers, and I won't perhaps mention any names, you know, get a little sniffy, well, you know, I don't want these gender studies people and, and literary studies people doing all this queer theory stuff with Bond, they should leave it alone. And we just look at Bond and, and, and international relations and international. Well, no, I'm not sure I buy that either. Um, that's what makes Bond and the Bond franchise so interesting that you can pull all sorts of different <laughs> things into it and people look at it from this wide array of perfectly valid approaches. Um, after all, you know, Bond uses his sexuality as a weapon. Um, and let's not forget that, that Bond is actually an assassin, really, more than anything else. But, I mean, Fleming uses this, this somewhat euphemism of a blunt instrument. But when we're thinking about Novichok and, and these sorts of things, and people going to see Salisbury Cathedral today, um, let's not forget that that's essentially what Fleming imagined Bond being. Yeah, you know, to get his double O status, he's got to kill the Japanese cipher clerk in, in, in New York, if I remember correctly, and then he's got to kill a Norwegian Quisling. Yeah, he's an assassin. And on another level, if you want something really controversial, here we have essentially an assassin working for the British state, being lionized by the British state today, the queen willingly jumping out of helicopters with an act of portraying him at the Olympics, it's really weird. I can't think of any other country on the planet where they have such a quite discreditable, despicable character in many ways, is what Bond is, quite a heartless chap, yeah, who's essentially an assassin. And yet the British say, oh yes, we love it, it's Bond, it's wonderful, it represents our country, yeah? This is, this is quite strange. Um, you know, it, it's not quite like, you know, a general in a tank leading his, his troops into battle. It, it, it's a quite scurrilous position in some respects. So if, if you want something really controversial, I think in many respects, that's the weirdest thing about Bond, how it's been taken to the British bosom, yeah, uh, quite so willingly. And I can't think of any other example in any other country of a fictional character like that. I mean, the Russians certainly haven't taken Raskolnikov quite to heart in the same way. <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know if there's any other examples that come to your mind, but I, you know, I can't think of any, you know. You know, the American and Sidney Gottlieb, I think, since I was recently, <laughs> I was talking recently with Stephen Kinzer. Um, right, right. I mean, I guess the image of the queen walking side by side with an assassin is a, a perfect moment to end the episode. So I will ask you the final question that I always ask uh, in this podcast, and it's perhaps an inevitable question, this uh, this time. What are the books? Generally, it was supposed to be three, but it can be as many as you want. What are the books that you would recommend reading on this? It can be either Bond novels or books about Bond. Anything that you would recommend? 
Well, uh, of course, I would. Uh, once it gets written and edited, I would strongly recommend the uh, the book that we're going to come out with, which is tentatively titled "The Bondian Cold War: The Transnational Legacy of a Cultural Icon," which will be in the Routledge Studies in Espionage and Culture series. Um, Self plugs are always welcome. Yeah, I, I, I'm guilty as charged. I'm Absolutely. Afraid. Um, apart from that, of course, I would strongly recommend uh, Kingsley Amos's um, The Bond Dossier. Um, a bit tricky to get hold of, perhaps, sometimes, but well worth it if you can. And one other, which I think is, for me, the strongest continuation Bond novel. I mean, of course, the Bond novels themselves, and they, and they range. Uh, if, you, if nobody's ever read, read a Fleming Bond novel, I would strongly recommend you, you choose one. Maybe not The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, on a Majesty's Secret Service, perhaps, Goldfinger, something like that. Um, I think one of the best is by Pearson, John Pearson, who wrote the first biography of Fleming after his death. But also the Ian Fleming sort of um, corporation uh, that Fleming has set up and, and keeps alive the, the name of, uh, of Bond, uh, commissioned him in, I think it was around 1970-71, to write a fictional biography of James Bond himself which is what Pearson did. Um, and he wrote this book um, as a fictional um, autobiography, sort of, of, of the authorized biography of 007 by John Pearson. There it is, I've got it there. What's interesting here, especially in the age of fake news um, and spin and, and hybrid warfare and gray zones and all these other fancy phrases people like putting things down, um, is that Fleming imagined that Ian Fleming had been employed by SIS to write these books as a cover for Bond, whose cover had been blown. So it was a double bluff, right? James Bond was real, right? Ian Fleming had written the novels about James Bond in order to fool the Soviets so they would never believe that James Bond is real, right? Um, now, this is perfect for these people who think that fake news is new and started in 2014 or 2016 or something. Yeah. Um, you know, this is back in 1970. It, it's a cracking read. It undermines nearly everything I've said about the Bondian Cold War because Pearson puts Bond in all sorts of places, including in Bed Budapest Zoo during the uh, Soviet invasion in 1956. I'll leave it at that, why he's in the zoo. So all these places that are left out of the Fleming, he puts them in and, and it's a cracking read and it's, it's probably one of the best continuation novels. And uh, on some days, I wonder if it's better than some of the Fleming novels themselves. Perfect, that's fantastic, fantastic recommendations. Martin, thank you so much. Uh, for being on the show. My uh, pleasure. Speak soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.